people loud. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunday School. Such a pleasure to be with you in person. I know many of you watch me on the screen, and I really appreciate that, being able to see you each week in Sunday School, because remember, I can see you, and I get to interact with you, and that's a great blessing, but nothing like being here in person. So we're going to be here today, obviously, and next Sunday. Uh, no Sunday School next Sunday, but I have the, the privilege of being able to bring the sermon to you next Sunday. Today I get to do Sunday School. Really excited about that. Really excited about our lesson as you know, we've been moving along through our study of the scriptures. We've been moving through the book of Exodus. And last time we saw God's climactic deliverance at the Red Sea or at the Reed Sea. And you would think that after such a mighty deliverance, a great deliverance where God has really put on his, his love and his power and his holiness, that it would make a lasting impression on the people of Israel. They would be led to holiness. They would be led to an ongoing fear of God. In fact, we saw that's how the passage ended last time. It says they feared God, they believed God, and they believed in Moses. But does it really last? Have they been changed long term? Well, we're going to begin to see the answer to that today. Because Israel still has a bit of a ways to go. They have indeed left Egypt, but they still have to cross a good expanse of wilderness to get to the promised land. And they also need to stop at Mount Sinai before they get there. Because remember, God said to Moses, you're going to return to this mountain and worship here. That's a sign that I'm going to be with you. And God is going to do something special for Israel at that mountain, so they have a bit of a way to go. And they're going to face some difficult circumstances along the way. God is going to test Israel by, well, certain desperate situations. Now, God is not going to be surprised by any of it. He already has a plan for how he's going to provide wonderfully for his people. But how will they do in the tests? Spoiler alert, they're not going to do very well. But the real question is, how is God going to respond to what Israel does? That's part of what we're going to look at today. Israel is going to turn to complaining, but God is going to do something surprising. How will a holy God respond to faithless Israel title for the lesson is God Provides in the Wilderness. And of course, as we look at Israel, we're always having a look at ourselves. Because we face difficult circumstances, God leads us into different patches of wilderness, so to speak. And how do we respond? Do we remember our mighty delivering God? And do we trust in Him and continue to obey? Or do we follow the path of Israel and turn to Anxiety, depression, bitterness, and complaint. Indeed, as the scripture says, what Israel experienced was written for our instruction, and we need to be instructed. So let's pray, and then we'll begin to hear that instruction. Lord God, I thank you for your word, and I, I thank you for being such, such a God, as the scripture declares. Lord, you are mighty you are generous, you are good, you are holy, and you are just. But one of the things we're going to see today, God, is that you are so patient. You show such undeserved grace to us and to Israel. Lord, I pray that we would be moved to no longer test your patience, no longer test your grace, especially by complaining but, Lord, that we would instead listen, trust, and obey. pray that you'd help me to be explained this well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please take your Bibles now and open to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15. So basically, coming right to where we ended last time, after the deliverance at the Reed Sea in Exodus 14, in Exodus 15, there's a kind of moment of celebration. There's some singing, there's some dancing, some tambourine hitting as Israel is commemorating and memorializing this wonderful deliverance at the Reed Sea. But then the journey resumes, and that's in Exodus 15, verses 22 to 27. And that's where we're going to start reading. Our first test, first wilderness test of Israel. Let's see how it goes. Exodus 15, verses 22 to 27. Follow along with me as I read. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness, and 
found no water. When they came to Mara, they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, that is, Yahweh. And Yahweh showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, Yahweh, am your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. All right, we've read our first passage. As always, we start with observations. Notice in verse 22 where Moses leads the people. It says specifically, Moses led the people, and they go into the wilderness of Shur. Now, where is this? I won't take you through all the details, but... People put Shur in different places on their different maps of the journey of the Exodus. But if you look at verses like Genesis 16.7 and 1 Samuel 15.7, they both describe the wilderness of Shur as being east of Egypt. Not really along the coast of the Red Sea, but east of Egypt. Which is one of the reasons why I think the Reed Sea crossing didn't take place at the Red Sea, but in the Bitter Lakes region, uh, like I mentioned last time. So they're moving into the wilderness of Shur, and that's most likely directly east of Egypt. And then notice in verse 22, it says that Israel travels three days into the wilderness. I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear the term wilderness. Over the last 150 years or so, we've developed a certain culture about wilderness in America, like, oh yeah, go into nature. Get connected to nature. Go into the wilderness. And maybe you're thinking of Yosemite National Park or even just like the forests of New Jersey. That is nothing like the wilderness that they're going into. When we're talking about this biblical wilderness, we're talking about a place where it's hard to survive. Think desert. Think arid brushland. Think wasteland. This is not a place you really want to go. And this is where Israel is growing, and they're traveling, because we know about the Passover just taking place, they're traveling around March, April. And this can, get a, this can be a very hot time of year in that part of the world. Very hot in the day, a little bit cool at night. And they're traveling probably underneath an unceasing sun. I don't know how well you do in the heat, but that's what they're experiencing. In the wilderness, in the desert. Man and beast, understandably, would be extra thirsty, extra uncomfortable in these circumstances. And they have to travel. They have to work. They have to eat. But they're experiencing all of this. And then the last detail of verse 22 says they found no water. Now surely Israel has some water with them as they're traveling through the desert. They've stored some. They've tucked some away. But their supplies are getting low. It's got to be replenished. They haven't found water for a while. And how long can humans usually go without water? About three or four days, typically. And then you actually die from thirst. So you could understand not getting any new water sources, there'd be a certain temptation toward anxiety, not only for themselves, these men and women, but their children and their animals. They're rationing the water they have, surely, but if they don't find water soon, people and animals are going to start getting sick and maybe die. But then verse 23 says, they found water. Ugh, but there's a problem bitter water. It's too bitter to drink. Now, we don't know exactly what bitter means. It might just mean it tasted really nasty. I don't know if you've ever tasted really nasty water before, something that's really sulfury or slimy. Ugh, you definitely don't want to drink that. But bitter could also refer to something actually being poisonous. When we get to the end of Scripture, when we talk about the, the plague judgments before Christ returns in the book of Revelation, one of them is a plague on the rivers, and it says they became bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. So either one of these things could be true, and certainly this is a very depressing situation for Israel, and they named the place Mara. Now, you may have a note in your Bible, what does Mara actually mean? 
bitter, bitterness. You know, they come up with pretty appropriate names in the scriptures. And this isn't the only place we see Mara in the Bible. Does anybody know where else the name Mara appears? Yeah, Steve. That's right. Naomi, when she comes back from sojourning outside of Israel, she loses a lot of her family. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. So same idea here. They name the place bitterness because of the bitter water, but it's not just the waters that are bitter. Because notice the people's reaction to verse 24. It says, they grumbled. They grumble, they complain. Now, it's worth taking time to clarify what it actually means to grumble or complain. Those two words are actually synonyms. Uh, the only real difference between the terms is that grumbling usually is a little quieter than complaining. Sometimes it's not even spoken, just kind of murmuring, or maybe even just in your heart. But grumble and complain are essentially the same thing. What does it mean to complain? I think a good definition, this is similar to what you would find if you just Google it or use a dictionary, it's to, well, actually, before I get to that, let me say what it's not. It's not simply expressing pain or displeasure. It's not simply that. You could say, I'm hungry, or you can say, our politicians are corrupt, not necessarily complaining, because to complain is to... It is to express disapproval, dissatisfaction with something. You're not just making an observation, but you're making a statement. Or you're, you're making a, a statement of disapproval. There's something in the universe that is out of order, and it needs to be fixed. That's what you're saying. There's something wrong here, and somebody's got to do something about it. That's what complaining is. So the statement, I'm hungry, it becomes a complaint when it's said in such a way as to mean, not only am I hungry, but somebody needs to do something about it right now. And often this is expressed in the form of a whine, as many parents know, right? Likewise, the statement, our politicians are so corrupt, that could just be an observation, unless you say it a certain way. If you say, wow, our politicians are so corrupt, okay, it's not necessarily a complaint, but if you say, ugh, our politicians are so corrupt, eh, that's, a, that's a complaint. Now, here's an important question. Is complaining a sin? It can be. And I think you're right. Many of you just, you just said yes, because most of the time it is. Just kind of like anger. Is anger a sin? Most of the time. And there's a way to be righteously angry, but we very often fail to be that kind of righteous anger. Most of the time being angry is a sin, in the same way, most of the time, complaining is a sin. That's why we have biblical prohibitions against complaining, like Philippians 2.14. Philippians 2.14, maybe this is something you taught your kids. You should teach your kids this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You are not to grumble. You are not to complain. That is a sin. But there is such a thing as righteous complaining. And you do see this throughout the scriptures. Look at the Psalms. Look at some of the things the psalmist says to God. You're really going to have to twist things to somehow say, oh, that's not a complaint. Look at Psalm, or just listen to Psalm 43, verse 2. Psalm 43, verse 2, the psalmist says, For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? This is not just a statement of a dispassionate inquirer. God, why are you angry with me? No, he says, God, this situation is out of order. There's something wrong with this situation. It doesn't make any sense. Why have you brought these things to pass? That's a complaint. But it's spoken by the Spirit of God. Surely that is a righteous complaint. Or consider the souls of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6. No. And the judgments that are unfolding in Revelation, and one of them, it says that the, these martyrs who are underneath the altar, they speak to God. And this is what they say. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 says, They cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, again, we cannot say this is a question merely seeking information. You know, God, I'm just kind of wondering. Now, this is, a, this is an expression that a terrible situation continually remains in the world. God, there's something out of order. 
why is it continuing to be that way? Is it, there's a certain amount of dissatisfaction or disapproval being expressed there. Even Jesus complains at times. For example, when his disciples failed to cast out a demon-possessed boy after the Mount of Transfiguration experience, Luke 9.41 records, Luke 9.41, Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Now, some of us may have said a version of that to some of the people around us. That's because it's a complaint. It's an expression of disapproval. Something's out of order that ought not to be, and it should be fixed. We'll see even later in our passage today that Yahweh, right here in Exodus, has a complaint against his people. So what's the difference? If complaining is not always sinful, what is the difference between righteous complaining and unrighteous complaining? I think the simple answer is faith. It's about faith. Righteous complaining, while it acknowledges and express, or it acknowledges that something's out of order, it expresses a disapproval about it, even what looks like an apparent failure from God to keep his promises, righteous complaining nevertheless stands in faith. It says something like this, God, this is not right according to what you've expressed in your word. This is not right according to what you've promised. And so I'm expressing it to you so that you may make it right. I know that you will make it right. Excuse me. Or I know that you will show me that it's already right. But I'm just telling you what I see. And so until you show me vindication, I will be satisfied. I will continue to worship you. I will continue to trust and obey. I mean, isn't this like what the prophet Habakkuk says in, in his book? He hears about something, or he's, to recapitulate it real quickly, he says, God, you know, something needs to happen to Israel. God's like, no worries. I'm bringing Babylon to judge it. He's like, that doesn't make any sense, God. Why would you do that? But God, I know I don't understand. So until you make me understand, I'm just going to wait and trust you. That really captures the idea of a righteous complaint. In one sense, you're expressing dissatisfaction because you say, God, this is contrary to your will. This is contrary to what your word promises. And yet, God, I'm satisfied because I know that you'll never truly be unfaithful. That's how you can complain. That's how you can express a righteous complaint to God. Now, contrast this with unrighteous complaining. What does unrighteous complaining really say? Well, it's often not directed to God specifically. Usually we try and directed towards something else, a person, a situation, even a thing. And we say, <clears throat> this situation is not right, and it's all so-and-so's fault. He failed to do what he was supposed to do, and he deprived me of something I needed right now to be happy. I don't have any faith that anyone is necessarily going to make this right. And so, until my circumstances radically change, I am justified in being angry, bitter, anxious, or depressed. I'm further justified in hurting, bad-mouthing, or disobeying whoever it is that failed me. That's what unrighteous complaining says. You can see the difference, can't you? Righteous complaint is given in faith. Unrighteous complaint is given in unbelief. Righteous complaint it still has a soul satisfaction in God. Unrighteous complaining, there is no satisfaction. Righteous complaining is actually an expression of worship to God. But unrighteous complaining is an expression of worship of self or of something in the world. Say, I need this thing, I love this thing, I didn't get it, so I'm going to complain about it now. But the righteous, he is still satisfied in his God. He worships God. Now, though unrighteous complaining is usually directed towards people or objects or situations, is that really ultimately whom it's against? We'll come back to that question later on today. But that was an aside. Let's come back to Exodus. Exodus 15, 24, it says the people grumble. The people complain. And notice against whom they complain. Moses. Well, of course. This is very typical of people. Something goes wrong. Whom do you blame? The leader. 
He's responsible. It's his fault. Moses has been leading us, and look where he's gotten us. Nothing but bitter water. Nice job, Moses. Some leader you are. Side note, how does Moses know where to go? Surely he's following God's direction. So whose leadership is really being questioned here? God's. Now notice in verse 25 how quickly everything changes. They grumble at Moses, say, what shall we drink? Moses cries out to Yahweh. Yahweh shows Moses a tree. Moses throws the tree into the waters. We don't know what kind of water, maybe some kind of creek or spring or lake. And then the waters become sweet, become fresh, become drinkable. <clears throat> That's it. All you had to do was throw a tree in there. That was easy. All this anxiety and bitterness and grumbling for nothing. Because look at what Yahweh through Moses is able to do. Now you've got your drinkable water, good water, sweet water. Why are you so worried? And notice the rest of verse 25. It tells us that it's here God tested the people. I don't believe this test refers to verses 26 to 27 because there's not really a test there in this location. So I believe the test refers to what came before, this experience at Mara, this lack of water and then this bitter water. This site was a place of testing, God says. God was testing his people through this difficult circumstance to reveal what was in their hearts. This is what God does with tests. But verses 25 and 26 also say that God used the occasion to give a statute, a regulation, a rule. It's kind of like a promise going for Israel going forward. We could paraphrase it this way. Basically what God says to them is, if you listen to me, if you will trust me, if you will obey me, I will protect you from suffering any of the plagues of Egypt. And notice the reason God gives at the end of verse 26. It says, for I, Yahweh, am your healer. You notice how personal that is. Isn't that an amazing statement from God? God's using a special covenant name with them, Yahweh. And God says, I am your healer. Second person personal pronoun. Not the healer of Egypt, not the healer just generally of the world, but your healer. What a grace. What a privilege for Israel. The word healer can also be translated physician. Either one really works here. God is saying, I will be, if you will just follow me, I will be delighted to personally see to it that you are well and that you are constantly provided for. I'll take care of you. I'll heal you. And then there's verse 27. They arrive at this place called Elam. Anything strike you about this new location versus what they experienced at Mara? Yeah, tons of water, right? I mean, it's just a kind of a short description, but it's like, whoa, this place is nice. 12 springs of water, 70 date palms. This is the exact opposite of what they experienced. This is abundance. That's where it ends. So we made these observations. Let's go to step two. Ask a few interpretation questions. First, how did this tree make the bitter water sweet? What do you think? It's a miracle, yes. Uh, you know, you, you just know if someone wants to be like, well, maybe there's some tree out there that when it touches the water, it like counteracts some bitter effect. Well, the problem is we have not discovered any kind of tree that could do that. There's no natural explanation for how this tree could make the bitter water sweet. And that's because this is a miracle. This is just another miracle of God, graciously given for his people. What is the significance of God leading the people from Mara to Elam? This is not, this didn't happen, and this wasn't recorded for us, just like, oh, you know, that's interesting. What does that show us? 
Yeah, Roy. Yeah, God is gracious, merciful. He knows how to provide. I mean, right, what are they doing when they, when they, when they question Moses? They're saying, you don't know how to lead us. You don't know how to find good water. And God provides. And then God's like, let me show you. I know how to find good water for you. Brings them to Elam, this oasis, just abundant water. All these trees around. It's been a wonderful place. God says, look, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. I know how to provide for you. Yeah. Right. I think that's true also, Mark. That their experience of bitterness or difficulty, when they experience ease and, and abundance, they can appreciate that so much more. And I think that's been true for many of us, right, in our own lives. When we go through something difficult, and then God leads us to a broad place, a place of abundance. And it's a reminder, God says, I know how to take care of you. Now, the statute of verse 26 of our passage, it's given as an if statement. Statement is given positively. If you will do this, this is what I will do. But because it's an if statement, what also is implied in a negative way? right. If you will listen, I won't bring the plagues on you. I am your healer. But if you won't listen, well, then I will bring the plagues on you. You will deserve the same kinds of plagues that they got. Now, what's so interesting, though, is that in this situation, the people did not listen to Yahweh. The people manifested a lack of trust in God and in his leader. They did not revere Moses, but there's no punishment. There's no discipline. There's no plague in this passage. But what does that show us about God? He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's gracious. He did not give them what they deserve. And so this would be another great lesson for Israel. Look, you, you saw the plagues and deliverance of Egypt. You saw the Reed Sea. And now you see what God did for you at Mara and Elam. Don't you think you should trust him now? So Israel learned an important lesson. Or did they? Because God's going to test his people again. Slightly different circumstance. Let's see how they respond this time. Exodus 16, verses 1 to 36. This is a larger section. Exodus 16, 1 to 36. Let's look at Israel's second test. Here's what the Bible says. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by Yahweh's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat. We ate bread to the full. You have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as what they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all, the, to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that Yahweh has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of Yahweh. For he hears your grumblings against Yahweh. And what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when Yahweh gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For Yahweh hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against Yahweh. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, Come near before Yahweh, for he has heard your grumblings. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of Yahweh appeared in the cloud. And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. 
speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? But they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what Yahweh has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. The sons of Israel did so. And some gathered much, and some little. When they measured it with an omer, you who had gathered much had no excess, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. Or when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, this is what Yahweh meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then Yahweh said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, white. And its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it. Place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land and they ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now in Omer is a tenth of an ephah. Okay, longer section. Second test, let's make observations. Notice verse 1 says that the people came to the wilderness of sin. Now we know what sin means, but that's not talking about this is the wilderness where the people sin. No, it's just the name of this place. I don't know if I'd want to live in the wilderness of sin, but that was what this place was called. This is just another patch of wilderness as you get closer to Mount Sinai. In verse 2, we find out that the people are grumbling again, this time against Moses and Aaron. And what are they grumbling about? Lack of food. I don't have enough food. And what's strange about Israel's memory as expressed in verse 3? Such a positive view of Egypt. Oh, man, Egypt was so great. All those pots of meat and bread. Oh, that was great. Moses, why did you lead us here? Now, is this memory of Egypt correct? Assuredly not. I mean, I'm sure they had food in Egypt, but it was no paradise. That was the place of bondage. God mightily delivered them out of it. But now they're looking back and like, man, it was pretty good back there. And this is only a month after they left Egypt, according to verse 1. This is the second month. Since the Passover. And already their memory is really faulty. I don't think that's just an error in their brains. Now what fact is emphasized about the people's grumblings in verses 7, 7 to 12? 
that over and over again. Yeah, it was implied in the first passage, but now it's quite explicit. When you grumble against Moses and Aaron, you're really grumbling against Yahweh. Now he says, look, I've heard your grumblings. I just want to let you know, I've heard your grumblings. And they're against me. Notice in verse 4, God tells Moses that he will provide food for the people from heaven. But he's going to use the occasion as another test. He gives Moses various commands to set forward, set before the people. They are to gather a certain amount of food per person per day, and twice the amount on the sixth day of the week, so that no, none will have to be gathered or cooked or baked on the Sabbath. God also commands via Moses in verse 19 that the people should leave none of the food until the following day. Anything left over, you've got to get rid of. That's on days one to five of the week. Now, considering that the people, they're only to gather enough for each person for one day. Enough so that each person will have enough to be satisfied. Why then might people leave some over until the next morning? Because it's not like, oh, I just can't eat anymore, I'm so full. That can't be the reason, because he says just enough for each person. So why would they leave it over? Okay, so maybe just so they don't have to work the next day, find more. But why else? Exactly. Now, remember, we live in a very different culture where food is abundant. But they didn't live in that culture, and they certainly didn't live in that culture when they were in the wilderness. We're not used to the idea of like, oh, you ran out of food, just go to the supermarket. You run out of food in those days, and that's it. So you can understand, there's a very great temptation to be like, oh, you never know what tomorrow will bring. Let's store some away. Well, we have to eat a little bit lighter, but at least we'll have food long term. God says, don't do that. Each day, there will be food for you. Don't leave any over until the morning. Now, what kind of food does God provide for the people? We've got quail and manna. Some meat and some bread. And you have to love the name manna. I just love these little things that you hear in the Bible. Manna is one of them. The people saw the stuff and they said, what is it? Mahu in Hebrew. So the people called it ma, which is basically another version of the Hebrew word what. Can I get some of that what? Our term manna comes from an alternate version of the word used in Nehemiah 9.20. Just another way to say what or what is it. And notice the details we get about manna. Notice where it appears. According to verses 13 to 14, it was, a, it was a layer that came upon the ground in the wilderness outside the camp. It's all over the ground, like frost. We can be very appreciative of that. We know what frost is like. Fine flake-like substance. Verse 31 tells us further, it was like coriander seed. It was white. It tasted like wafers with honey. I don't know about you, but that... Sounds pretty good. I could go for some manna. Imagine some breads or some cakes made with this manna. It's very, very tasty. But then this other weird detail, verse 21 says that this manna would melt in the sun when it got hot. It would melt. Now God provides this quail, provides this manna, gives them commands. But how do the people fail to keep Yahweh's commands? Multiple ways. Give me, give me one. They left some over, right? They left some over until the morning, and it grew worms, bred worms, and it stank. That was one way. What else? They went out on the Sabbath. God said, don't go out on the Sabbath. Moses even told them, you won't find anything, and they went out. Uh, how else? Maybe this first one doesn't, doesn't quite appear to us, but remember he says, gather each of you an omer full. That's a certain portion for each one of you. But verses 17 to 18 says that some gathered much and some gathered little. So were they obeying that command to gather a particular amount? No. For whatever reason, some were gathering more. They're like, oh, no, we better get more. And some, uh, for whatever reason, they didn't gather enough. And yet, amazingly, when they brought it all back, everybody had just the right amount, even though they didn't do exactly what God told them to do. Now, we should note when this, even though when they left it over during the week, it bred worms and became foul, when they obeyed and left 
some over for the Sabbath, it did not breed worms or become foul. That tells you something. Notice after seeing the disobedience in particular about the Sabbath, we hear God's complaint. I told you it was coming. God's complaint in verse 28, he says, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? Now again, this is not a question asking for information. You know, I just want to know how long, how long it's going to be. God's saying, this is wrong, guys. How long are you going to do this? This ought to be changed. Despite this disobedience, though, notice that the people are well provided for by God with abundant food. And notice the chastening that God also brings upon the people in this passage. There is none. No punishment, no chastening. Even though he even said in the previous passage, if you listen, then I won't bring you to plagues. No chastening here. Rather, God commands in verses 32 to 34 that take a certain amount of this manna, set it aside as a perpetual reminder. Put it in a jar, and you're going to place it before the testimony that I will give you. And then verse 35 tells us right towards the end of the passage that Israel would eat manna for the next 40 years until they finally enter Canaan to inherit their promised land. That's a significant statement. It lives a little bit of a foreshadowing of uh, something's going to happen there that's going to prevent them from going to the promised land. Some disobedience. But Israel will go through a lot during those 40 years. They're going to disobey. They're going to fail to trust. They're going to complain some more. But God brought the manna every day for them. Every day they woke up and there's that faithful sheet of manna on the ground so that the people would have enough food to eat even in the barren wilderness, mind you. Now, let's ask some more questions of interpretation now that we've looked more closely at the passage. How did Israel do in this second test? They failed. Now, truly, not necessarily every single person in Israel did, but as a whole, they complained, and then various sections of the people failed to keep the commands that God gave about gathering the manna and storing the manna. How were the grumblings of the people expressed against Moses and Aaron really against God? Let's tease this out. If they say, no, 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 we weren't complaining about God, we are just complaining about Moses and Aaron, how would we respond? That's right. So, like we observed in the previous passage, God's giving the words that Moses and Aaron are to speak to the people. God is also leading Moses and Aaron directly. But even more generally, we can, we can say any sort of complaint against a person, even against a situation or a thing, is ultimately a complaint against God. Why is that? That's right, because God caused it. As we've been seeing again and again, especially with the plagues of Egypt and what God says about Pharaoh, God is sovereign. He is the king. And if you complain about something in the king's kingdom, you're charging the king with wrong. God is the one who gave you the leaders that you have. God is the one that gave you the health that you have. God is the one who put you in the situation that you're experiencing. So when you say, ah, this is not right, and whoever did it, whoever caused it, deserves to be punished. You're saying, God has done wrong. You're charging God with sin. That's why we need to realize, you complain against a person, an animal, an object, you're really complaining about God, because he's sovereign over all of that. Another question. Why did God make people gather their own food? I mean, God brought the manna, the quail. Couldn't he have just, like, prepared it all too? Stuck it on the dinner plate in each home? And that would have been nice. But that's not what he did. Instead, each person had to go out, bend down, gather this flake-like substance as their daily bread. Why did God do it that way? Earth. Yeah, that's that right. Yeah, I think so. I think that's part of it. It's very, very individualized, right? Let each person gather for himself. 
He wants all of them to have this experience of gathering manna. Yeah, Jawan. Yeah, I think that's part of it too. Work is dignified. God, um, God honors work. Remember, God is Himself a worker. What were you gonna say, Ron? Okay, yeah, it's part of the test, right? If God just did everything, just made it all appear, then people didn't really have to do much, exercise much faith in God at all. But when they go out, and then when they specifically obey the Lord's commands, then they're actually being tested in their faith. I mean, ultimately, we have to say that God can do what he wants. God can make them work for it, or God can make them not work for it. In fact, as we keep looking at Israel's experience with God, we're going to see that sometimes he makes them work, and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he says, you're going out to battle. I'll give you the victory, but you've got to fight. And sometimes he says, stand aside. I'm taking care of this. Like he does with Hezekiah and the Assyrians in the book of Isaiah and in the book of Kings, right? 185,000 Assyrians killed in one night by the angel of Yahweh. Israel didn't do anything, really. Hezekiah didn't do anything except trust God and pray to him. God does what he deems best in each situation. But certainly he has called us and he called the people of Israel to obedient stewardship. He has called us to use the means that he has provided for providing for ourselves. Sometimes we pray, God, you know, I need this thing to happen. Can you bring it, can you bring it to pass? Well, a lot of times the way God answers it is by your own work. God, I need money. Well, good. You need to work. Or, God, I really want this person to become saved. Good. Witness to that person. That's how God is actually going to answer your prayer, by you being obedient. Sometimes he doesn't use you. Sometimes he does. You're just called to be an obedient exerciser of the stewardship God has given you and imitate God even as a worker. Now, here's another question. Ask the same thing the Israelites did. What is this stuff? What exactly is manna? What would you say? Yeah. <laughs> it's what? Yeah, it's basically, you can't do much better than that. The description we got in the Bible is pretty much all you can say. No one knows what exactly this special provision of food was from heaven by God. Some have sought, however, to identify it with a particular known thing. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of something called honeydew. I'm not talking about the melon-like fruit. There's something, a phenomenon in various parts of the world called honeydew, where insects, they bite certain trees, and through the, the explosion of sap and sugar that comes out of the tree and is ingested by the bug, the bug immediately excretes a sweet honey-like substance, which is called honeydew. This substance is even called manna today. It's been classified as manna, and it can be gathered and eaten by animals and man. Apparently, you can get really, really good honey from this manna-like substance. But we can say confidently that this manna, this honeydew, is not the manna of our passage. How can we make that conclusion? Okay. Right. So the, the manna of our passage is described as, as a bread-like substance, a flour-like substance. It's called flaky, and, and, they're, and they're making it into bread things. Why else? Why else do we know this is not the same? Yeah, Steve. Okay. Yeah, that's another good point. He says that the timing of the man in the scriptures is, is quite significant. Forty years, and then when we get there, as soon as they cross over into Canaan, it stops. If it were just natural, then they well, no, they could just keep gathering it. I think another detail we could point to is that this modern manna, so to speak, it comes from trees. But the Bible describes the man as being on the ground. It's, it's all over the wilderness, outside the camp. So multiple details of the passage, they don't line up with this honeydew manna explanation. So here's another instance where somebody's looking to provide a natural explanation for what the Bible says, and it just doesn't, it just doesn't line up. This is another miraculous provision from God. Like that tree being thrown in the water, so the manna is a miraculous provision. Now God doesn't always have to use super miraculous provisions. He does provide via his providence. And, and you can say the quail 
might be that. Uh, certainly quail are, the existence of quail is not miraculous. Certainly, certainly having them all be there at that time suddenly was significant. But God is, when the Bible clearly shows God is using a miracle, we should stand up for that. We should understand that. Now, one more question of interpretation here. Why doesn't God chasten Israel? He just told him, if you listen, I won't bring plagues on you. They didn't listen. But he doesn't chasten them. Why not? He's just showing more grace. Just showing more patience. They don't deserve this. But in kindness and generous patience, he's showing it to them. He knows what they're doing is wrong. It is a complaint. When they complain, it's a complaint against him. It is an affront to his greatness and holiness, his sovereign wisdom and goodness. Yet he shows them mercy. Now, I know some of you are already thinking, God will not always act this way with Israel. There will be times that he will chasten them for complaining or for disobedience, but not yet. In fact, we only see God chasten Israel after what significant event? That's right. Not until they go to Mount Sinai and God really spells out the covenant terms. He just lays it all out there. He makes it so clear what he will do if they will disobey. It's only after that that God begins to actually chasten the people with plague judgments for complaining, for setting up the golden calf, for other things. Yeah, Juwan. I think so. I think that's part of it too. It's not just that God hasn't fully spelled out the terms, but uh, just in case someone might say, "But we didn't know. We didn't know you could. We could trust you." God's gonna say, "I'm gonna. I'm just gonna show you. I'm gonna give you multiple instances where you're gonna see. You didn't trust me, but I'm still gonna be patient with you to show you that you can believe." Now, really, before even the first test, they should have done that, and God would have been right to chasten them. But I think He's being overabundant in his patience and in his grace, saying, look, there will be no excuse because I'm going to show you, I'm not going to chasten you, I'm going to show you abundant kindness so that you will learn. And this is similar to what God is the patriarchs, right? Patriarchs, they don't always get things right. They don't always trust God. But God shows grace to them. And what do we see happen to the patriarchs? They change. They do learn to trust God. Israel doesn't have quite the same change. Yeah, Roy. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, God is showing himself to be abundantly reasonable. I still think it's true that even if they hadn't, no, even if God hadn't shown them any patience, even at the beginning, he's like, oh, you complain? All right, here, here comes judgment. That would have been justified by God because, well, come on, they just saw the Red Sea crossing. They just saw all the plagues of Egypt. God has already been showing them mercy. But I think it's still true. You're going to, Israel's going to come to the end of all this and they will have nothing to say like, oh, well, God should have given us like a grace period. Like we were just kind of getting used to this wilderness thing. And they won't be able to say that. In fact, that's what's going to be true about Israel's experience throughout the scripture. In, in Isaiah, the very beginning of that book, chapter 1, he talks about raising Israel as a son, but he's like, but my son is turned out disobedient. What could I have done for Israel that I didn't do? And that's, that's really what we're seeing here in this passage. Now, there is a third test. Uh, we won't read through it and comment on it too much because our time is a little bit short. The third test, I'll just summarize it for you, Exodus 17, 1 to 7. It's kind of a repeat of the first one, except this time it's not bringing Israel to a place of bitter water. It's a place of no water. 
But it's like, come on, guys, you know, remember what happened last time with the water? Like, you could trust God. But what do the people do? They complain. They grumble against Moses and Aaron. In fact, Moses is afraid for his life. He says, a little bit more, they're going to stone me. God, what do I do? What does God do? He says, look, take your staff, go to this certain rock or this rocky place, strike the rock, and I'll provide water for you too. I'll provide water for you. And that's what happens. God provides water for the people and their animals from the rock. And Moses named the place Masa and Meribah. And those two terms are significant. Masa means testing. Meribah means quarreling or contention because the people were asking, is God really among us or not? So even after those first two tests and God's mercy and God's provision, well, Israel's still doubting God, still complaining. But God's still not bringing any chastening judgment on them. He's still just providing and being patient with them. But he still wanted them to remember. He commemorated the site. Uh, remember what you did. Remember what you did against God here. You complained again. So as we move to one more section of interpretation, or I guess kind of tying it all together, what's the main message of these passages today? Surely two of the main themes are the wrongfulness, the sinfulness of complaining. And the clear display of who God is. He is a patient God. He is a gracious God. He is a providing God. This was written for Israel, that new generation of Israel that was going to go into the promised land so that they would not do as their forefathers had done. They would not complain and doubt and disobey, but that they would instead trust and go and obtain the land. But of course, What was written to them is also for us. So we need to do the same. We need not to complain, but to listen to God, to trust God, and obey him. Even when he sovereignly brings us into situations or gives us people or things around us that are difficult. God knows how to provide. Remember Elam. He knows how to give you those 70 date palms and the 12 springs. But he has something else in mind, a particular instances. He wants, he wants you to go through a test. He wants to reveal to you, reveal to others what's in your heart so that you may grow, so that you may be changed. Now along those lines, I want us to drill down a little bit on the idea of complaining because let's face it, this is a, this is a big problem in our world and it's a big problem for us, even as Christians. So here are three questions to help us explore complaining and to deal with it. Number one, what types of things do you or do people tend to complain about in an unrighteous way? The weather. So hot. So cold. What else? Work. Oh, my job is so boring. Oh, my job. My boss. My long hours. My not enough hours. What else? Homework. School. (laughs) Teachers. Yes. Yes. What else? The government, what'd you say? Spouses, family members? Yeah, Brian. <laughs> yeah, we can complain about our selfish desires not being met. And that, that manifests in various ways. The government, yes. Other people. How about other people who complain? <laughs> right? Because if you ever listen to someone complaining, you're like, oh, that is so ugly and annoying. And then what do you do? You complain about it. No one likes to be near a complainer, and yet we're all tempted to do it. There are so many things we complain about. Sleep, lack of sleep, machines that don't work. Oh, spell check is so stupid. Didn't know what I was going to write. Bad service at a restaurant. How we look. Uh, Your children. People who sin against you, animals and pets. Your pets can do some pretty annoying things. Your team not winning in a certain sports event. All sorts of things we complain about. But let's face it, as our passage says, when you complain about those things, if it is in an unrighteous way, if your satisfaction is shattered and you're no longer worshiping God, then it is an unrighteous complaint and it is an affront to God's sovereignty. So second question, what thoughts and beliefs in the heart motivate and lead to our sinful complaining? Okay, an unappreciation for for what? Yeah, for the good that God has given us. What else? 
right? So a sense of entitlement, basically pride. I mean, that's, that's the way the Bible calls it, right? Saying, I don't deserve this. I deserve some other situation. I saw another hand. Yeah. Okay, false view of God, specifically in what way? Right, right. So no longer appreciating or trusting the sovereignty, the wisdom, the goodness of God and trusting in our own wisdom. It's, it's really a lack of trust in who God is, just as you're saying, Juwan. Lack of reliance on God. Lack of love for and satisfaction in God. A lack of belief that he knows what he's doing. And along with all these, it is the idolizing of something in the world. You say, I need this for satisfaction. I need this to be secure or happy. And because I don't get it, I'm justified in complaining. you got to deal with a heart idol. Complaining is just a symptom of problems in the heart. And one other thought. How serious is God about complaining? In our passage, we don't see any chastening for it. But after Sinai, we do see thousands of people will die because they complained against God. God is serious about complaining. It is one of the things that marks the people of God versus the people of the world. It is a direct affront to his wisdom, goodness, and sovereignty when you complain. And what's interesting is in 1 Corinthians 10, Many of you know that passage that talks about no temptation is overtaking you except what you're able to bear. Or these things are written for our instruction, talking about Israel's experience. But what I found really interesting when reading through it and reading the context the other day is right before, right before that passage begins, Paul finishes 1 Corinthians 9 by saying, so I beat my body and make it my slave so that when I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified. Disqualified from what? What he goes to talk about next is Israel being disqualified from entering the promised land because they served other gods, they were immoral, and they complained. Basically, because they served their cravings and their idols rather than serving and trusting God. They were disqualified from the promised land. I think there's, there's there's a reason those things are put together in Paul's mind. He says, you will be disqualified from being with God if you act the same way, if your heart is the same as Israel's. And of course, in that context, it was with food being sacrificed to idols, people trying to exercise their liberties and not love their brethren. They basically were just serving their cravings. He's like, learn from Israel's experience. They disqualified themselves. You don't want to be disqualified. Trust in God. Be grateful for his provision. You don't deserve anything good from him, yet he's shown it to you. If we find ourselves complaining, we need to deal with our hearts. We need to let the word deal with us. We need to deal, we need to have those idols unmasked and dethroned. Yeah, Danny. right that's right that's right exactly danny um as james says count on all joy when you encounter various trials not because the trials themselves are great but because you know god's doing something good through it you know it's a great opportunity for your sanctification your growth your trusting in god this is why romans 8 28 to 30 talks about how we know god works all things together for good for those who love god for those who are called according to his purpose so Yes, we should be marked by joy. We should be, as Philippians 2.15 says, we should be like stars that stand out in the darkness. The world complains. When you don't complain, when you have that gratitude and that thankfulness that marks you, you're going to stand out. That's what God's called you to do because that honors him. Now, if you have other questions or comments about today's lesson, come talk to me afterwards. But that's all for this week. We're kind of out of time now. Won't be Sunday school next week, as I, as I mentioned in the beginning. But when we do come back, Israel finally reaches Sinai, and they receive God's law. We'll talk about that. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you know so often we, 
we affront your sovereignty, your wisdom and goodness by complaining. But God, we ought to progress. We ought to learn. The first generation of Israelites, they didn't learn. They didn't progress, and thus they disqualified themselves. They never actually trusted you. But God, you have done a work in our hearts. We've come to know Jesus Christ. So God, cause us. Lord, we know we're responsible, but cause us, Lord, to progress from doubting to trusting, from self-reliance to reliance on you, knowing that you're doing good in every circumstance. I pray, God, that you would root out complaining in our lives and in the lives of our children. We'd be diligent to show that this is an affront to you, and that instead we would replace complaining with thankfulness and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.